If we have not met, I'm Pastor Mike Ramsdale, We're getting up here a little bit late. Thought we had one more song, but we don't. Uh, as we gather together today, we're beginning a new message series, Five Dumb Things We Do to Mess Up Our Lives. Hope you're excited about that. I'll say more about that here as we get into the series. Uh, I will say that one of the things that Pastor David and I talked about preparing for the series was, how are we going to narrow this down to five? Uh, there's more than five, but we have really narrowed it down a little bit. But before I talk more about that, I want to introduce something to you. Uh, you may have heard about this already, but Pastor David Alexander, our directing pastor here, wrote a book. It's now available, came in this week. It's called The Deep End. I'd love to have you uh, purchase that book and read that book. I want to show you a little bit with you on the back of what it's about. Uh, these are the words of Pastor David. In my experience, the process of finding faith often feels like we are losing faith. Learning to swim involves learning to let go. Putting your face in the water and letting go of the side of the pool is not as easy as it may seem. Until you do, swimming is impossible. But as soon as you do, you find yourself doing something you could not do before. Growth often demands a sacrifice, and sometimes that sacrifice is leaving behind the comfort of what we thought we knew or the uncertainty of what we have yet to discover. This book is, this book is about my own experience of learning to swim in the deep end. If you'd like the book, and I hope you do, and you want the book, and I hope you do, they're available in the atrium today. In fact, today only, David's going to be back there. He'll sign it for you if you want that to be done. Uh, they're $10 a piece. If you're one of those who prefers Kindle, I think there's a Kindle version. You can also buy them on Amazon. But if you get them here, he'll sign them, and you'll have it right here in your hand, and you'll be able to start reading it today. And so it's called The Deep End. Hope you'll be a part of uh, investing in his life and he and yours. Our journey together as a church family, this is a key part of that. So I wanted to share that with you today before I officially begin the message about five dumb things and today the first dumb thing. And we purposely are not telling you what they are. You won't know till you get to church what we're going to be talking about. I want you to stay home that day or say, I don't need number three. I'm okay with number four or number five is me. I'm not coming, you know, so we're not going to tell you. You'll find out when you get here. So today is number one, and I think maybe the most important one. I'll share that in a second. Uh, in my late 40s, uh, I looked and realized that I wasn't going to have enough money to retire ever. And so begin more carefully investing money, putting money aside, messing with the stock market a little bit. My dad has always been part of that. He's always done that kind of thing, so he gave me some advice with it. Then one of my very first investments that I actually did myself I bought a stock for $3,000. I set that money up, put it in the stock, bought it, and it kept going down. As I watched it go down, down, and down in my little feeble brain, I thought this, you know, it's got to go back up. I'll put some more money in it. And so I bought some more. And I kept buying some more as it kept going down further. I'm thinking, well, man, if it goes back into where it was when I first bought it, I'm going to make a lot. I kept doing that until I had $10,000 I'd put in there. And it finally got down to basically nothing. I lost almost all $10,000 there in that. What was I doing? I was investing in a loser, hoping it would become a winner. Can you hear me now? I was investing in a loser, hoping it would become a winner. I'm going to read for you these verses in Philippians, not all the chapter, but most of it. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Hear the words of Scripture today. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, there's any consolation of love, there's any fellowship of the Spirit, 
If any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or self-absorption, selfishness, self-centeredness of empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Jesus Christ. Think about those words. And the last verse, every time we'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Three simple verses. Talk more about them in a while as well. I've been a pastor a long time, maybe 36 years this year. Uh, have a large family. Extended family, my, uh, my wife's family, my family. Uh, have my own kids and grandkids and uh, served churches for many years. This is a very large church. I know lots of people. Walk through people, with people through all kinds of journeys in their life. And I've experienced a lot of heartbreak because I know a lot of people. And I've seen people mess their lives up for no reason. And seeing the disaster that results in that, if they just listened to the words that God gives us, because he gives us a book, it's called the Bible. This book gives us guidelines to how salvation is given, but also how life can be lived, how it can be meaningful, wonderful, good, purposeful, and full of joy and happiness. And we miss that so often because we do things that seek our own ship. We damage ourselves and those we love the most. It's heartbreaking And we've simply verbalized that in this series, five dumb things we do to mess up our lives. Tell you a true story about a man named M. Scott Peck. Uh, You may or may not have heard his name, but you might have heard the book. It's called The Road Less Traveled. Not around much today, but very popular at one time. Still read. You find it in almost any library. Any self-help book section will have this book there called The Road Less Traveled. It's the classic, the first book that connected self-help, practical tools, and spirituality to make someone have a better life. Sold millions and millions and millions of copies of that book M. Scott Peck did. It advocated self-discipline, restraint, and responsibility. And through those words, he became the father of what we now call the self-help movement, combining spirituality and tools to become a better person. He had a seminary degree, psychiatric degree, a medical degree, made millions, sold millions of books, yet here's what Christopher Reed wrote when Scott Peck died in 2005 at the age of 66. Here's what he writes. He spent much of his life immersed in cheap gin, chain-smoking cigarettes, inhaling cannabis. Those who don't know what that is, that's marijuana. Don't tell me if you knew or didn't know. It's funny to me. And persistently being unfaithful to his wife, who eventually divorced him. He also went through estrangement from from two of his three children. He died at the age of 66 of 2005, having lost most of his, his wealth. All he had left was a little bit of fame with nothing. What happened? You read his story, he was really centered in, and he said it himself, I couldn't do what I told others to do. He wanted to be happy. He couldn't find happiness. He kept searching for happiness in all these activities. And in doing so, he destroyed himself and most of those people around him who cared about him. We say, we want to, we journey, make me happy. 
we find ourselves on one side or the other or both where we think, if I could make everybody in my life happy, then I would finally be able to be happy myself. My family, my spouse, my friends, my church family, my coworkers, and so people drain themselves. What did I say to begin with? You know, we, we keep investing in a loser, hoping it's going to become a winner. I'll keep trying to make everybody happy, and finally I'll be successful. I'll wake up one day and say, hey, that worked. Or we think if I could control everybody else, if they would all do what I wanted, if, I could, if, they, they, if they would operate the way that I hoped, then, then they would make me happy, and then I would be happy. And, we, and when we, we, keep, you know, we keep investing in a loser, hoping it's going to become a winner. So the number one thing I think people who mess with their lives is somehow think that I can make people happy or they have to make me happy. And if I can make all that work, then the world will become, you know, whatever we think it ought to become. How do we know that we have been impacted by this very American way of looking at life? Here's how I think we know. If we're in here at all, any place in this or ever have been, we're going to complain a lot. Complaining is evidence or a symptom of this make me happy idea. Or I can make others happy. Because we're always going to complain. Because they're not, and I'm not. And so it's always going to be bad. It can't be good. It can never be good. It's never going to get good. And so we're always going to complain. We can't go anywhere else but that. We're going to be resentful of people in our life. We're going to resent them. We're going to resent the folks we work with, those we uh, live with, uh, those that we uh, have ruling over our country. We're going to always resent people. We're going to find ourselves being ungrateful because it's not going well. It's not happening like it. This is what's supposed to happen. I work so hard to make them happy, and they're still not. So we're going to be ungrateful. I, I, I worked so hard to make them do, know what I needed them to do, what they needed to, how they needed to operate, how they needed to fix this or repair that or treat me this way, and they're still not doing it. They still don't know who I really am, and they don't love me, and they don't care about me, because if they did, they would make me happy, wouldn't they? So we find ourselves ungrateful for even the smallest of things. That grows into bitterness, pessimism, and often, if not always, anger. People find themselves angry. We live in a very angry culture. I believe, from my perspective, what I have learned as a pastor, as a father and a husband and a grandfather and a friend, just like many of you are, I've learned that, uh, that these are the symptoms of the make-me-happy attitude and destroys people's lives. And what does the Bible say? Have this attitude in yourselves that was in Jesus have his attitude. People everywhere exist to make me happy. Or, if not, they must be out there to make me miserable because that's what they're doing. They're in the world to help me, benefit me. If not, they only irritate me. Or they should get out of the way of my personal goals, which is to be a happy person. Are. If I could make everyone happy in my world, my family, my coworkers, my friends, then I could be happy. I would be of value. I would be of worth. I would be appreciated. And I keep trying and keep failing, you know. So what did we say again? We keep investing in a loser, hoping it's going to become a winner and it's never going to happen. 
Have an attitude in yourselves that was Jesus Christ. Because Jesus did neither of these things. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See how he lived his life. He loved God. He spoke the truth. Gave himself freely. He lived for God. He said, happy are the merciful. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are those who thirst for righteousness and for God. Happy those who are mourned and who are poor in spirit. I'm not talking about a feeling at all, but simply a state of being in God, walking with God, knowing God, experience God's love, love and grace. And grace is the foundation of this series. I'm going to talk about things that are going to strike at you. You're going to say, yep, yeah, I'm in there. I'll talk about things that strike at me. This one does. And yet in the midst of that, know that God's grace simply makes us all an even playing field. We all start at the same place. This God's grace and mercy and where we go from here and what great time to begin this and in a new year, the foundation of the series. Philippians again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Jesus Christ who took the form of a bondservant. Five dumb things people do to mess up their lives make me happy. Statement I made in the past about our, it comes from our culture. People are way too willing to sacrifice others on the altar of their own happiness. If there's anything that is the center point of American culture today, that really is it. And I see the, the heartbreak because of this. That my goal, someone would say, my goal is to be happy, and I should be able to be happy. Uh, I have a right to be happy. And therefore, to be happy, I need to do this, and I need to hurt these people. I've hurt all of them and become happy, which is almost never the case. Happiness very seldom comes because of the actions that we often take. When we beg, borrow, and steal, hoping in doing so we'll be happy in the end, most often regretting the behavior afterwards because we believe, we believe that we, if we keep investing in a loser, it's going to become a winner. If eventually I do it right, and, and I, then everybody will make me happy, or I'll find someone who will, or I'll find someone I can make happy, and we miss the point of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, the first point I want to look at I share with you from Colossians 3, 1, another verse, and I'll read that in a second. You can't possess happiness. Put that up on the screen if you can. You can't possess happiness. It's not a possession. We can't own it. We can't, and yet we, we, we live in a world that's all about possessions. We, we see outcomes and possessions and achievements. So we operate with that way of thinking. We keep on this train we're on that we're going to get to some kind of outcome we're looking for. And so we, we, we sometimes actually act like it can be a possession. I'm going to finally own it. I'm going to, I'm going to get a hold of it. I can do something that's going to make it happen. And, and, and this person can give it to me, or I can get it from this person who, who I'm pleasing, or, and we operate that way. And so we look for it. Instead of pursuing God, we pursue happiness, pursuing faithfulness, pursuing good. Now, my, my point is that pursuing God, pursuing faithfulness, and pursuing good most often creates a deep inner joy and satisfaction. I may not feel wonderful all the time, 
may not be dancing in the streets with our version of happiness in America, but we think that it is our version of fun. But I, but I will experience something much deeper than that. Deep End talks about that some that, that David wrote. So we do that. People sometimes pursue happiness, and in doing so, they find themselves dealing with addictions, immorality, buying things they don't need, trying to control others. There has to be something I can do, that person says, that will make and keep me happy. Or something somebody can do for me that will make that happen. And it becomes a dumb thing because it doesn't work. If it worked, it's fine, but it doesn't. It doesn't work. We can't experience that. And, and if you have any life experience at all, you're saying, you're right about that because I tried that one. That ain't worked yet, but somehow we keep thinking maybe one day it will. One day I'm going to wake up and that, that, that loser is going to become a winner. Instead of finally just selling the last 50 bucks and saying, hey, off with that, I'm going to go some other direction with this. I'm going to start thinking about Jesus more, what that really means. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We're full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The verses here simply says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. We connect with him and realize that for my, for, for my understanding of faith is that when I connect with Christ in this way, then that walk with God in a loving, merciful, grace-giving, saving God, that I'll walk in that way. From that, that will filter in every other relationship. That'll filter into my other uh, friendships that I have and, and marriage and family and, co- and co-workers and church and world that I live in. But it begins in that core central point of it's all about Jesus Christ for me who brings me security, who brings me hope and life, who gives me grace in my experience, who fills me with this Holy Spirit and is always there and, and dependable and I can count on him and, and I walk with him in that way. And in doing so, that filters into everything else. Saved and set free, free to live the rest of my life. So that's a key point of that. You can't possess happiness, but you can pursue faithfulness and good and God. And that's where life must be lived from that. Well, secondly, control issues are basically make-me-happy issues, even a God complex. What I mean by that is that sometimes we feel like control sense, if I can control others in my life, the world I live in, then I would be happy. And so what we're saying is I'm, I, I complain and I'm resentful and I'm bitter because I'm not God. That's one of the symptoms of what I've already talked about, uh, this make me happy idea, uh, that I'm not God because if I was, then the world would do what I wanted it to do, people would do what I want them to do, and everything would work out like I think it ought to, and so I'm upset about that, so I get more and more, I complain more and more, I get angry more and more, I, I get more and more resentful, and I become more and more bitter by trying to live that way because, it, again, I'm, I'm, putting, I'm putting money into a losing situation. It's not working for me. What's wrong? And we often say, what's wrong with God? If God was God, then it would turn out like I wanted it to. Wait a minute. You just said, if God is God, then he's the one that's in control, right? Not me. Uh, the other day, we were cleaning out our garage in our house, and we were getting things ready, uh, doing so. And, and we do that together. Most of, my wife and I, Rhonda, do that together most of the time. She's kind of controlling about that type of thing, what goes away and what doesn't. And when she was gone, I took uh, uh, two big trash bags, filled up with stuff I was going to take to the mission center. 
And she didn't see what was there. And she came to the house and I said, I filled up two trash bags. I'm taking the mission center. She said, well, I need to go look in those. You know, I knew what was coming. Or I had an expect- expectation of what was coming anyway, which was we're not throwing anything away is what I was expecting. And she walked over to the bags and took the first bag and went, started op- opening up and said, it's better if I don't know. And she closed it back up. I thought, just my wife? You're going to let me throw those things away without knowing what they are, take a mission center without them knowing what they are. And he said, it's better, it's better if I don't know, you know. Uh, can you say, I don't know? Can you just say, I don't know? I, I don't know what the future is. I, I can't control the future. I have no idea. I might think that I do. I, I, I don't know. Can you say that and say, Lord, I, I trust you, God. I'm glad I'm not God. I'm glad that you are you know, to be able to find that kind of assurance of peace and a loving God who gave us his son, Jesus Christ, that we say and have said and have read the verses where it says, Jesus Christ, you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm not. And that's a good thing, as I often say here. I've been a pastor a long time, as I've said, and, and when I first came to Mansfield, the church grew very rapidly, and uh, I won't say that I'm a controlling person, but I have a tendency to want to have outcomes that I want. You know, I have outcomes that I want to take place. And I'm very clear on what those outcomes are personally for me and my family and the church. And, uh, and I began to, to, to do that here. And, and I had an idea what church is supposed to be. You know, how the, what we're supposed to do and not do and how it should look and how it should work and all that process. And, and I read a book a long time ago uh, in that season, about 15, 14, 30, 14 years ago, called The Permission Giving Church. And I read that, and, and the book had good ideas, but, but what it said to me was, hey, there may be something out there that only God can see, a surprise, a, something God wants to do, something God wants to make happen, some, some outcome that God has in store that's beyond what I can have in my frame of reference or my experience or my understanding of life or how I'm wired. Something bigger than that may be there that, that I don't know. And I began operating that way as a pastor in a permission-giving way. Uh, to, to, to leaders and members and also church staff as our church began to grow. And there's many things in our church that are rooted in that simple idea, permission giving, that move me away from controlling the outcome and trying to trust the outcome into God's hands. And what God's outcome has been has been something I had not anticipated or expected. And that's the same thing in our personal life. And, and every pastor has to learn about the control issues because you can't control anything, but you still think you can. And you have to give that up. You have to quit looking in the sack and saying, okay, that's in God's hands. I'm just going to preach the best I can, you know. Uh, I'm going to love the best I can, serve the best I can, and, and be free in that way. And how we live it, celebrate and experience God. So control issues are basically make me happy issues, even a God complex. I'm mad because I'm not God. Or I wish I was. Or when is that going to happen? And it never does, so we're never happy until we submit to God's authority. Submit to God's love and grace. And that's the third point. Make me happy issues are sometimes a deep-seated brokenness. Lies unwilling to submit to God's authority. To trust in God's love. To live in God's will. Struggling to experience healthy relationships. Meaning that we don't experience healthy, healthy relationships because we often live in these areas. And that's not what it is to be someone who's knelt before Christ said, you are my Lord and my Savior. Or someone who knows how to turn your eyes upon Jesus, look at him and find the comfort that God gives you. Or someone that gives up those senses of control in your life or realizes that, hey, I can't make anybody happy, but they can be happy. 
And nobody can make me happy, but I can be happy. And where does that come from? And how do I experience that? And how does that filter out in the rest of my life, the journey we're talking about today? M. Scott Peck spent his life looking for happiness. He had everything that Americans care about. He had success. He had a good family for a while. He had money. He had fame. He had exchanged all that for dumb things. Infidelity, drugs, alcohol, marginalizing his family, living a make-me-happy life rather than sharing the happiness that comes in Christ. He missed what he offered to others. Will you bow with me in prayer? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you today for what you give us in life and the blessing of this word. May you teach us more clearly, God, what Philippians teaches us, what Colossians teaches us, what the life of Jesus Christ teaches us, we might live that life. Always by your grace, where we begin today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.